Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, in a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter, a weekly email that covers important shifts in the marketing technology industry. People work at some of the world's largest media, tech, and marketing companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay. Today, I am joined by John James. John is the host of Champagne Strategy. It's a great podcast talking about growth, marketing, and strategy. Um, he's also a marketing and technology consultant and a startup entrepreneur. Uh, John started working for global ad agencies, and then he went client-side for a period of time, and then to government as well. He's worked across B2B and B2C. He's worked at digital agencies in Melbourne for more than half a decade in account management roles and sales. Then he went and started his own agency that ran for about seven years. Uh, John's also been working abroad in San Francisco. He's worked as a growth manager for a startup, and now he's back in Australia to channel his energy into architecting growth marketing platform. So John also sits on a number of advisory boards, and he helps a modest list of privately owned companies with their growth sales and marketing strategy. And today we are talking about why you do, don't need MarTech. Bit of a controversial episode, given that this epi- this podcast is all about making sense of MarTech. But John has a very unique perspective on why strategy is so absolutely critical when it comes to buying tech. And in most cases, and from what he's seen in his experience, you don't actually need a lot of technology to get the job done. So now I give you John James. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate hey, it. Great to have you. Great to have you. So can you tell us a bit about your story, John? I mean, um, you've worked in across uh, so many different disciplines here, um, but how did you actually get into podcasting with Champagne Strategy? And what does your work look like today, working with a number of companies across the region? Yeah, look, I haven't met anyone that's done the same thing I've done. It's been very random at times, but uh, hopefully I'm converging now. So I've done the divergence, coming back to convergence. And Look, very diversified, as you said, I've worked in lots of different size companies, lots of different product offerings. I've had to personally market and sell them and mostly optimize around a revenue metric. So that's a very different discussion when sometimes you're separated too far from the end customer and the end sale in, especially in marketing positions, as you probably know. So look, I think that gives me a unique perspective around the things that work and the things that don't and what you need to get the job done and what you don't need to get the job done. You know, what's what's the fluff and what's the meat and veg? Um, so yeah, look, in terms of the, the podcast, that was me during the start of COVID going, look, we're all stuck at home. I need some stimulus here, some intellectual stimulation, which I sometimes don't get in my work. And I just thought it was a good chance to capture people all that were maybe had a bit of free, uh, free time in front of the screen to talk about different topics and to talk to people I've always wanted to talk to. And I surprisingly found there was a lot of people with uh, that would just say yes, because there's nothing else to do. So I started that and been running it ever since. And it sort of snowballed. And um, look, for me, it's not a commercial enterprise. It's just me asking interesting questions to interesting people with um, with firsthand experience. And it's really blending that strategy into that execution and measurement piece that that I find really interesting. A lot of people just plan and do strategy and then sort of handball it to somebody else to execute. And then the execution person sort of handballs the measurement to somebody else. And there's this like break between those three phases. But when you connect those three together, you get this synergy effect that is just really powerful. And in the discipline of growth, that's what it's all about, this circular feedback loop. So that's my kind of quick MO. 
So your so ShareBay's strategy, your podcast was a was a COVID baby. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it was um 2019. So well, 2020. Yeah, actually June 2020. So what was that sort of COVID? It was like oh, well, March, right? So yeah, it's like month two, and I'm like, look, I got some spare time. I was on make use of this and i'm a big fan of getting my hands dirty and actually doing the thing then mapping out the workflow of how to do that and maybe scale that communicate that to another team so you know the operations piece Mm. and i do that so for example uh there are some people you may talk to in marketing or growth field who get other people to do these things like agencies or people below them Mm. um and that's fine you need to do that as as a director or a manager to, to to move up but I think if you've never done it at least once, um, there is something that gets missed there because you sometimes don't know how to communicate to that person or to that agency how to get the most out of that that expenditure or that resource use. And uh, I find a lot of people like that. So I'm a big proponent of getting my hands dirty at least once, mapping out how it's done, and then trying to scale that thing. And yeah, coming back to your thing about uh, marketing tech, uh, it, it's kind of like controversial, I know, but at the same time, I think you should do that process first and do the thing that doesn't scale, find out whether it's valuable, test it, and then use technology to scale that thing as much as you can. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, hey, because I've worked across consulting mostly. I have worked in a number of startups before going consultancy side, and I really benefited from learning how to say implement a CRM or sort of manage a brand agency or do my own content, build a social media audience. And, you know, even with the Martech Weekly, which is also a um, COVID baby, if you want nice. to call it that. <laughs> uh, so the Martech Weekly and the podcast were started during COVID 19. For a lot of the same reasons was the intellectual stimulation and also that curiosity, but then also the world felt closer as well. I mean, because everyone was on the same medium, which is a laptop screen or a a computer um, or a smart device. It meant that we could actually connect in ways that just didn't seem possible before COVID. Um, Being in the room was far more important back in before COVID land. And so I think that, yeah, that's really interesting that, you know, as you say, being in the weeds of learning how to build solutions, but also figuring out what works and what doesn't is incredibly valuable when you get into more leadership positions and you say have a team, but it's always a challenge because tech and tech is always, always changing, but let's uh, let's get into the guts of this conversation because I think this is going to be a good one. And I, and I really want to challenge making sense of my tech listeners on do they actually really need to buy marketing technology? You gave me this fantastic quote when we were doing our prep for this episode. And you said, when tools become the starting point, the brand can quickly find itself in trouble. Most MarTech provides tactical proficiency, but not strategic validity. How do you actually delineate between those two things, strategic validity and tactical proficiency? What does that look like? Yeah, well, just the really simple answer is strategic validity is like, why are you doing this? And tactical proficiency is doing it really well. And those two things need to be connected. Um, so strategists are very good at looking, zooming out and looking at the big picture and going, okay, where are we as a company? Where do we want to play? What do we want to own? Um, all those kind of hard questions, you know, what's our offering to the market? Will they like it? There's a lot of assumptions built into that, right? But you are zooming out of your little niche thing that you do um, in your role and going and asking the hard questions, just why? And I think uh, the good litmus test for a lot of people uh, to test their strategic thinking is just in their current role, what you do today, just ask yourself when you're doing a task, why am I doing this task? And if you can't justify that, like, how does that relate to the business's goals or whatever? If you can't justify and ask yourself why and have a really good reason and explain to somebody else, 
you're not really acting strategically. You're just in operational robot mode doing something. Um, sometimes you haven't been told why, but it's a really good test of your seniority and your strategic thinking. And then I think tactical proficiency is like, you can easily get box hold and do something because you've always done it and you can do it really well, but it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Often with a lot of choices, there's trade-offs. So if I do this, I can't do something else, the opportunity cost, we call it. So I think when you're a really good strategic thinker, you're always thinking about probability and trade-offs over time because you always have a resource constraint. So it's always a, well, if we do this, we can't do that. We can't do everything. So what are we going to focus on? And a lot of the advisory work that I do is just about focus. And I come into these teams and they're just trying to do everything and acting really busy. And they're somewhat tactically proficient about a lot of these things. And they're looking really busy, but it's not moving the needle. And the missing piece sometimes is just asking very simple questions and maybe not doing some of the things that they're doing. Mm. John, can you help our listeners understand your view on strategy like how do you define strategy it's such a squishy complicated term that you know everyone gets wrong everyone gets right it's so messy but how do you see strategy in a nutshell well i interviewed brian graves about this who is working for snowflake now but used to work at walmart and he has a good take on this so i'm going to sort of paraphrase a bit from him Mm. and let's be specific about which type of strategy. He breaks it down to like four functional layers. Like there's business strategy, which is those very meta, what I would call business model sort of strategy things. Like, you know, what is our offering? How big is our market? Where are we going to play? How are we going to defend against competitive threats? All those sort of like very macro things that affect the entire organizational functions. And then he goes down into organizational strategy, which is more stepping down into department level, right? So finance, you've got marketing, sales, products, you know, all those other sort of functions of the business. And then from there, you can go down another step into more of the the functional layers, which is maybe, I don't know, your CRM or customer success, which branches off one of those other big functions. So just to be really clear here, there is different types of strategy at each one of those levels. And I think some people go, oh, look, strategy is everything. It's just, you know, making choices. And I think it is. It's just understanding the bigger picture, how you fit into something bigger than what you're doing, and then making choices in a way that have some kind of justification for asking why. And that will naturally... Um, add a test to the thing that you're doing and and focus you. So that's my sort of bad maybe explanation of strategy. No, I like it. I think I think the way you break it down is really interesting because you're right. The strategy has different flavors depending on how or what sort of level in a company you're working at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like even Mark Ritson once famously said, he said, "There's no such thing as digital strategy." He said, "There is a marketing strategy, and digital was just a set of tactics within which." But then you work with people who actually are working in digital digital strategy, digital marketing strategy, and they'll they'll say, "No, there's actually strategy here. You need a strategy for SEO. Like you need a strategy for how you're going to build an audience on TikTok." You need a strategy for how you're going to win back your customers with an email win back program. So often, you know, with these kinds of discussions, we can get buried down and buried in sort of uh, the semantics of what is strategy, what isn't strategy. But like, if I could do a nutshell, I would say strategy is, it's an informed opinion on how to win, you know, how to achieve a goal, right? But then also it gives you, as you point out, I think quite helpfully, it's a framework for how you make the decisions to help you get there. 
You know, it's like, these are the things we're going to do or not do, or these are the criteria for what's in and what's out when it comes to the decisions we make as we go down a path, say with the team or with a particular channel or with marketing as well. Uh, yeah, look, really, I, yeah. I think just to interrupt there, I think let's just use a really good example in marketing, right? Because there's yeah. a MarTech uh, thing. Like everyone talks about channels, right? And, you know, Ritson sort of brings this up because he doesn't do anything digital and probably doesn't understand it. But if you said, oh, let's do SEO or let's do... Google ads, or let's do this. Okay. That's just a tactical choice. If I asked you, why are you going to do that? You then have to justify to me, well, and you'll pause and go, well, actually, because we've always done that. I'm like, that's not a good answer. Or because our vendor is selling us this. Okay. That's also not a good answer. If you said and answer that question, oh, because we know that, you know, X percent of our in-market customers are going to be searching on Google. And we know there's not many players there and we can insert in here and maybe crunch some numbers and go, look, for a modest investment, we can rank this, you know, target these keywords, measure this. And we know with this kind of validity that we'll acquire customers at X rate with this kind of CAC. That is strategic thinking. If you then go and instead of saying to someone else, let's do an SEO campaign or let's do a Google campaign, but instead provide them with like, this is our objective. This is why we're using this thing. These are our sort of general goals. Let's break it down to these objectives over these timeframes and be very specific about what we're measuring and then go, and we want to focus on these sort of keyword groupings. We're going to use this methodology for improvement over time. And we're going to measure it with this cadence and review it on this sort of like, you know, a quarterly level and then feed it back and make a, a, a go or no go kind of decision based on continued investment. That is applying the strategic planning process into the execution piece. So uh, I think strategy, I, I agree with Karim on this, Karim from Cascade Strategy, just call out to him. I, I think he answered the best. He just goes, like, the litmus test of strategy is like, ask yourself, just why am I doing this? It's that simple. And like, <laughs> I think it's really true. Yeah, <laughs> just ask why. I mean, yeah, look, Simon Sinek once asked that, he said, you know, just ask why, right? Why, why, yeah. how? Said, okay, well, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's, 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 I think it's uh, deceptively simple. And it that's is. the problem with it is that it's not complex enough, right? Uh, yeah. as, as a concept, as a strategy. But anyways, I think it's a fascinating <laughs> topic. But, but let's jump into another question here because I think your point of view is so interesting and needed in the industry where we're talking about, the problem of acquiring marketing tech that sits on the shelf and nothing is done with it. Absolutely nothing. And I want to know, I mean, why is that? Like, why do you think we don't really need that much marketing technology to get the job done? And what is the problem here in terms of marketers buying a bunch of tech and then it's nothing's really done with it? I think it's multidimensional. Um, I think uh, I've observed, I should say, that people perhaps with a lower understanding of the tech that they're buying tend to buy the tech at face value and they buy into the promises. And we both know that a lot of propositions by MarTech aren't always 100% accurate once you start using it. So, you know, you're sold the promise of, of this thing solving a problem. And I think CRMs are a perfect example of this. It's like there is this fallacy out there that, hey, buying a CRM will somehow magically, automatically make your customer acquisition process easier and somehow automate that whole sales process. And look, I I suppose I'm exposed to, in my specialty is services, right? And in, within services, complex, high value services. And you can't get and automate things and acquire customers with it. It's just inherently, there needs to be friction in that process. So a lot of tech really doesn't help that process whatsoever. So I suppose 
I had this sort of revelation early on because I get to see things not working. And we just went back to old school sales prospecting on the phone or emails with Google spreadsheets instead of a CRM because that was more effective. Now, is that scalable? Not really. But I think a lot of people just don't stop and ask like, well, what value am I getting out of this tool? So I think there's just this general misunderstanding of perhaps what the tech can do and the value it can provide the organization. And people buy into this promises instead of reality. And then I think, and you probably noticed this, that within the SaaS world, we've had a boom over the last, I don't know, decade, right? And I think it kind of peaked in 2014, 15, if I had to pick a year. And since then, there's just been this oversaturation. If you look at Scott Brinker's MarTech tools map, I think that sort of shows you visually just the explosion of different MarTech tools. And it's just like, there's just been this proliferation of software out there in the marketing realm and they've all sort of started merging into each other's territory so now crms are starting to go into cdps you've got dmps going oh crap you know our whole business model screwed so let's call ourselves a cdp now and tack on a crm you've got mailchimp going well we're not a newsletter system anymore we're a marketing automation and crm and this and that and you've got this <laughs> this sort of like regression to the mean of what i call frankenstacks which is this SaaS tool trying to be everything to everyone and failing basically at, at all those things. And sometimes you're better off just getting rid of it all and using a, a smaller number of specialty tools that do the job really well that you can rely on instead of this stack of tools that sort of do everything badly. Yeah, there's some great research that talks about that in the, the context of best of breed versus marketing cloud. So, you know, I think Nike is one really good example where their marketing technology teams are very sophisticated in terms of tech and very mature, and they will pick the best tool for the best job. So if it's A-B testing, then they'll pick the best A-B testing tool. If it's marketing automation or SMS services or all the different tag management, as an example, they'll pick the very best solution in that category that yep. is aligned to their needs. But then there's companies that tend to go towards the cloud and they'll go, hey, let's go Salesforce everything. We're a sell like often, you know, uh, people will talk about certain companies being, oh, that's a sell Salesforce shop. They they run blue or oh, they're a HubSpot shop and they run orange, you know, or they're Marketo shop and they, you know, that's their ecosystem. So, you know, they're a purple shop. You know, and I think that the problem with that is the promise of everything in that particular marketing cloud will be the right solution for their company. When in most cases, the integration between the tools in the cloud, in those marketing clouds are very weak, tenuous to best. So that's, I think it's an interesting point that you raise here, but I think leading onto that, and then, you know, we're going to talk about the inverse of a question that I just asked you in a minute, a little bit later, but before we get there, I want to talk about sunk cost bias. And you've talked about this quite a bit in your time as well. And I think it's a really good one to bring up when it comes to MarTech because, you know, you have someone who buys technology and then they hold onto it or justify holding onto it when they maybe don't need to. But how do you understand that context of sunk cost bias with the companies you work with? But then also, do you have any stories to tell? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just happened a couple of weeks ago uh, <laughs> with a client. And yeah, just getting back to your point of, I think sometimes this pushing of certain stacks or branded stacks, like I've got a, I'm a HubSpot certified agency. Guess what I'm going to recommend to all my clients, HubSpot, no matter whether it's good for their needs or not. I'm a Zoho, I'm a Salesforce vendor. And I think some of that bad choices come from just vendors who are 
or the current supplier for, for that company, like they're an agency or something, and they're just pushing products on that are maybe not best fit. So yeah, a lot of the advisory work I do is just maybe questioning the validity of some of those choices. But yeah, coming back to sunk costs, and this is interesting because there's some, uh, how would I say companies? I don't want to name them. There's one that starts with O and one that starts with S that do this very well. And there's this, I would say, misconception in sales that we should make the sales process as frictionless as possible because you know if you make things easy to buy and everything then they're gonna buy more but often the reverse is true and some of the best sales teams add intentional friction into the the sales discovery phase or early stage sales phase intentionally to increase the commitment and if you read cialdini's uh, seven laws of persuasion one of them is the commitment consistency principle and I'll just dumb that down, but have you played poker before, uh, Texas Hold'em? Yeah, I'm really bad at it. Yeah. Okay, it doesn't matter. Most people have played uh, poker, but basically you're betting in rounds and you start with X number of cards and then there's a kitty in the middle or the pot, it's called. And let's just say, I think I have a, a reasonable hand, right? Maybe it's like a you know, queen pair. And I think, okay, I'll put some money in the pot. And, you know, everyone else does as well. And then, you know, the flop comes out and it's like no queens, but I'm, I'm pair high. And I think, oh, look, you know, I've got another chance of this. And someone bets really big. And I go, oh, maybe I should go in or maybe I shouldn't. And they go, oh, you know, stuff it. I'll, I'll, I'll take the chance. So you, you, you call their, their blind and then you go in and the pot's bigger. So now you've got more money in the pot. And then maybe you just say another card comes out and maybe it's, I don't know, a queen. You think you're doing really well. So you put more money in. And then, you know, the last one comes out and, and someone else has a crazy hand or potentially has a crazy hand. And you're making this decision about whether I should fold or, or continue. And the, the fallacy here is that the more you're invested in something, the more you are going to go along with it, regardless of whether it's a good outcome or not, if you're thinking rationally. And the best entrepreneurs I've ever met are people who can sink a lot of money into something and make that call to cut and run on a probabilistic thinking basis. They could always win and go through and it could turn out really well, but they all make that irrational decision. Most of us will not. Another analogy is relationships. Maybe you're with someone and you just know underneath, it's probably not the best thing, but you just go along with it, right? Because it's convenient or, or whatever. And you keep going, keep going, keep going. Now you've invested, you know, two or three years or something into this relationship. And, you know, that's going to act as a, as a barrier to you ending the relationship. So some cost fallacy is very similar, but in a business context, some organizations can sink a lot of resources into something, a solution or an initiative. In this case, you know, tech, we go through that really long implementation phase, you know, at high cost and it takes months and, you know, we're all going to be like, oh, this is going to be awesome when it launches and it launches. And what happens is it doesn't live up to expectations or worst case scenario, it's really bad and worse than the original choice that, that you had, the incumbent solution. So, but then by this stage, cause you've spent six months and all this money and politically everybody's, you know, bought into this thing. Everyone sort of grumbles and gripes away and just sticks for that solution, even though now it is giving you a worse solution than before. And that's a, a probably a really simplistic explanation of, of the sunk cost fallacy. In sales, we use this intentionally. Um, we draw out their implementation phase. We, you know, drip feed them things and waste their time so that when we ask for the sale to be closed, they'll do it because they don't want to realize that opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a, that's a quick explanation. Yeah, there's, there's so many layers to this, but one word that comes to mind, concept that comes to mind is Stockholm Syndrome from MarTech. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it's kind but, of it, elements of that, isn't it? It's like, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's like psychologically like a phenomenon that, but yeah, it can. I mean, it's cognitive dissonance or like bias remorse is a really good example of this. It's yeah. just like, you know, you don't want to admit to yourself that you made a bad decision. So you just go along with it, even though it's bad. And we do that all the time. We convince ourselves at a later point that actually that was a good good thing. And that person wasn't as bad after all. And and yeah, it, it's it's funny. Let me let me ask you this question, John. What do you regret most? Wasting money or wasting time? See, this is a hard question to answer. Time is the only thing I can't get back, but I'm a business owner and I think a bit differently to maybe an employee or maybe someone in an executive position. So I think the first question is, you know, what's in it for me? <laughs> and if there's political capital, then that's interesting to me. If I'm in a bureaucratic organization, I want to move up. If I'm on a base salary and not incentivized by the deal, then money is not going to incentivize me. Even time, if I'm on a salary, there is no incentive for me to finish that thing quickly because in fact, there's a disincentive to finish it quickly because that just adds more work and more pressure and stress on my situation. And I'm not going to remunerate it anymore because I get remunerated on a, on a monthly basis, right? So I think that's why a lot of these projects the timelines really blow out because no one really cares for it to be finished in any sort of proficiency. But for me, yeah, look, time is something I can't get back and it's something I have to be really conscious of. And I think once you're a business owner, you are very, very conscious of opportunity costs yeah. and the situations you make and the foregone alternative, which is, you know, what it is. Yeah. I'm going to posit that marketers regret wasted time over wasted revenue or wasted wasted um, money. And the reason I say that is that in most marketing departments, everything is needed yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> like literally everything well, is needed. Well, time is money, isn't it? You've got this, everyone saying, hey, we should do this, we should do that, we should do that. Yeah. And then it's like, it's so hard to get anything done because you're so resource constrained that, yeah, I, we probably have to agree with you. Like just getting something done and implemented is is better than nothing. And you know what? It's a miracle in most cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, standing on market to implementing a successful use case is it's a miracle. I think in most cases, I think what you're talking about is really important because when you go down the path of buying and uh, acquiring a marketing technology tool, then implementing it, and then going down, say, a 6, 12, 18, two-year track. Training you know, people to use it. You've got to, to deal use, with that because yeah, there's going to be animosity in the team. They're going to be like, oh, I'm going to switch systems again. Oh, I'm going to learn a new thing. Oh, just when I knew the other old system. Like, you're going to get that. Like, this, yeah, like the, the, the sticker price of the monthly or annual licensing fee pales in significance to all the other costs borne by the organization. It's exactly. not even close. Exactly. But then you also got to deal with the greasy salespeople and the, 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 the revenue and convincing the higher ups, you know, building a business case, business case so yeah. much effort and activity in just yeah. acquiring and onboarding a MarTech uh, platform. And, so, you know, some, some of them are very easy, right? Like you can get in, like I could sign up for MailChimp today and, and start sending emails within 30 minutes. But what I'm saying is that for companies, the bigger they are, the, I think this problem exacerbates itself in that, you know, you go six months, 12 months down the path with Salesforce, and then you realize it's not the solution for you, or you the same deal with HubSpot or the same deal with another tool. And you go, oh crap, we're just going to have to make do with what we have because you know what? The regret over time and the ability to start again is just way too hard. And it's scary, right? Like, mm. you know, in like say, you know, having to say goodbye to $50,000, it's probably not as scary as saying, we're going to have to go through that process all over again, you know? And, and actually completely redo everything. Like that to me is probably more of a, and a situation that marketers want 
to avoid or people who are buying implementing tech that want to avoid. But I think it's an interesting one to raise. Well, hey, I have found a solution to this. And I stumbled across this through my advisory work. So I'm an independent advisor, trained advisor, not just, you know, planted in there by the VCs to, you know, act in someone else's interest. So uh, (laughs) a lot of people come in and I do a project advisory. So they go, Hey, John, we're thinking of you know changing stacks, or this is our project that we want done. And we need someone to come in here with a completely independent view, not tied to anything internally, and give an outsider's perspective on to help us make a decision about this thing. And often these are tech stack sort of questions and projects. And there's a lot of risk in there. And it's just un, I would say unrealistic for internal teams to know everything about everything. It's just impossible. So they leverage my experience doing this with hundreds of different organizations with every tech system known to man. And I help them step them through this and avoid those mistakes and give them structure and answer their questions, um, which they would otherwise have to get from the sales rep of that vendor (laughs) from their agency who don't really know. So I think that solves a lot of problems. And like I did this just recently, um, it was, a, it was a firm that was looking at a CRM and I helped them uh, maybe just create a table of like, okay, what's your requirements? And they hadn't, they didn't really know what their requirements were. I'm like, okay, let's write down a list of all the things this thing has to do, the CRM. And then, so they wrote it out and it took a bit of time. And then I was like, okay, we're going to present this to all the other people who this CRM affects, which is operations, you know, sales, customer service, growth, et cetera. And we had a meeting and we sort of presented, hey guys, this is what we think the CRM must have. And then we had this discussion because he had assumed that everybody else had the same requirements. And then it washed down the meeting that that wasn't the case. There was a lot of discussion. The discussion was actually a really good meeting. And everyone was like, that was a great meeting at the end, which you know rarely happens. And then our must-have list of requirements had changed slightly. And then we separated all the requirements, must-haves and nice-to-haves. And we time-bounded it and said, look, you know, we're probably going to make another decision about this six months or 12 months anyway, realistically. So we need this for this long and it has to do these things. And if it does these things, other things, well, that's a nice thing, but it's not essential. And then we can make a really rational decision about which vendor we went with and it was just a, such a smooth process and bang within one week and a half the switch has been made wow different process wow less discussion and i think that i apply the discussion to execution ratio test here people who don't know the right decision to make will have endless discussions and mm. all that happens is like people talk and talk and there's another discussion it goes to this department blah, blah 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 and all these people are talking and no one's making decision because they don't know everything to make a decision. And there's this sort of risk in the back of their mind of making the wrong decision. And yeah, I just find that inserting that sort of process just clears the air and people commit to something and a lot quicker and they actually do the thing that they need to do at a lot quicker rate. Yeah, that's really interesting. I agree with you with that is that there's, I think everyone's a little bit different, but like it's the level of information you need to make, what your tolerance is to make that decision, right? Like, is it 30% of all information or is it a hundred percent, you know, like, and then a lot of people that need a lot of information to feel comfortable, make a decision. And that also plays in the risk tolerance as well, as you're talking about, you know, but yeah, it's, it is rare to see somebody particularly a little bit higher up in an enterprise company, say like make a pivot and make it hard without, um, yeah, without a lot of deliberation. Um, you know, that's a really rare skill and it takes conviction yep. and it takes character and it takes values and really knowing what you're trying to achieve here. I mean, that is, I would say, pretty rare um, in most businesses, but it's great that you raise it. But now I, I want to spend a bit of time circling on a question that you've been asking, and I think it's a really good one. Um, and the question is this, what if we removed all the marketing facing tech out of our business? What would we do differently? 
What's your approach to that question? Yeah, well, like this is the inversion mental model technique, right? So sometimes when you're trying to solve a problem, you remove the thing that the problem is about and then think with a sort of zero-based sort of planning thought process, right? And it's actually really interesting because you take away the main assumption that is in the decision. And I do this quite a lot. So sometimes I use a test of like, hey, if we started this business again and removed all the tech, we didn't have any of that, what would we do? And often it's quite interesting. And this happened last week. They were using HubSpot and they went to Zoho and just Frankenstack happened. People left, operational know-how left. And I'm just, I asked them, hey, let's just pretend that we didn't have Zoho, didn't have, you know, this website, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, how we sell our product. And it's amazing that she was like, oh, well, what I used to do back in the day was I just had these sheets and we had people's names on them and we just called them and emailed them manually. And it was a high touch service, high risk sort of like value offering that they were giving to the market. And um, that personal touch actually was the differentiating factor that made their sales work. So basically it was just a phone, some some paper, like a filing cabinet with pieces of paper that had customer profiles on it. And uh, they would just ring and email people and you know take credit card transactions over the phone and process it and bang, they had a very functioning business. And uh, it was just, it just occurred to me like, oh, actually, I think if more businesses did that and, and asked that question, I think the, the answers would be really interesting. And I think by doing that, you go, what is the minimum viable tech that we could use at our company? Yeah. And I think a lot of uh, companies don't ask themselves that question. And, you know, do you need a CRM? Uh, can you just use Google Sheets or like Airtable? Like, are you really hitting the limits of that solution? And yeah. I think, you know, do you need to scale something? right now with technology on, or can you just get away with something that's like messy and unscalable, but, but works. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah well, exactly. Exactly. And, and I, you know, it's crazy how much um, the idea of scale as a value for marketers mm. has invaded our industry. Like marketers is like, how do we scale this? How do we scale this? You know? And I'm like, okay, that's really maybe not the right question to answer. And coming back to that, there's this really interesting podcast. I'll, just, I'll send you the link anywhere. Asworth uh, Demaradin, I think his name is. He's on the Pivot Podcast, Stern School of Business, New York. Um, he's he's very well known for valuating, valuation techniques for companies, right? Financial valuations. And he makes this analogy about companies acting their age. And he was like, there's a lot of companies in the mature phase that are not acting their age. And they're you know, they're dabbling with tech and doing incubators and, you know, you know increasing their stack and, and doing all this kind of stuff that really isn't their age. And they should just admit to themselves that they're, they're never going to be the, like that and they're never going to do it well. And they should just act their age and, and sort of just ride out their journey into, you know, middle old age and, and perhaps death instead of trying to, you know, put Botox into their lips and, you know, do another facelift. And he uses this sort of facelift analogy. And I think a lot of tech is used as a sort of quasi sort of facelift, if you know what I mean. Like we've got this problem. Okay. Look over there. Let's implement this new digital, you know, shiny toy. And that's going to solve all our problems. And often there's fundamental things underneath the business that need addressing before that, that are, don't involve tech. Mm -hmm. But the idea of scale, like that's the thing I'm getting to is that, oh, yeah. you know, in any industry, in any economy, you've got ideas, right? Ideas fuel, fuel the stock market. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the, the idea of Meta not being a viable company in the future is why there's st there's talk the stock is tanked. The idea that everyone's going to be online post-pandemic, you know, absolutely pumped the valuation of companies. Now it's halved, you know. So the ideas are really, really important here. And I think that the idea of scale is one that needs to be constantly challenged because- yeah. 
You should only scale after it's been effective and proven. And then you try to scale. And some things just won't scale or be really hard to scale. Those are things that are often very valuable. And like even Jeff Bezos, apparently, I mean, this is the, the, the information that I've been given is that he goes through his personal email address where people communicate to him like Mm. thousands a day and will occasionally pull out an email and put a question mark, like a customer anecdote, like a complaint or something. And then he would on for that to the most appropriate, you know, sort of henchman in his organization going, you know, what about this? Now that is completely unscalable. They have more data than anybody in the world, but in that sort of scalable sort of digital data thing, sometimes we can miss the, inherent sort of anecdotes and little nuggets that really create step changes in our business. And those things, you know, often don't come from scalable activities. Um, Example, you know, as a marketer, do you make one phone call to a random customer every week? And if you did, some of the insight you get from that is just amazing for your business. And it's like this call versus quant market research thing. It's just, you know, there's trade-offs between the two. So even Paul Graham from YC, Y Combinator in 2013, wrote an essay about the importance of doing things that don't scale. Mm. So I don't know where this whole scale mantra came from in in tech, but you just need to be aware that there's a trade-off between the two. And sometimes unscalable, high friction things for the customer give perceptions of higher superior value and can be a huge differentiator strategically for the business. Mm, Yeah, I I agree. I I think... Yeah, doing the thing that doesn't scale. I mean, Paul Graham has got a really good essay about this from back in 2013, you know, and, and he, in Y Combinator, you know, it's one of the, probably the most well-known startup incubators in the world and very successful, has launched a lot of successful tech companies. And and he would say, he's been saying for more than almost yeah, 10 years now to say to YC entrants not to do things that, that scale in the early days. Because I think now Matt Mullenweg, the CEO of, of Automatic, that's the current company of Tumblr and WordPress, he says that all the interesting things happen at the edges. And what he means by that is um, that people who are dealing with customers, the people who are dealing with requests and complaints and issues and challenges, that's all the interesting stuff, right? And that's where all the learnings are. And that's where all the insight is, is in what those customers are doing and how they're behaving and, and how they're interacting with products and services. And, you know, I think there's, the the challenge is that you know being in that space to learn from your customers as you point out like calling a customer a week isn't hard but that doesn't scale right you know yep. and that you can probably apply this whole discussion to analytics and bi as well thinking that Big you time. Can scale insights right sure you can build a fantastic automated dashboard it's got all the metrics on there but you know what it's not like the hard work of finding insight, the gold of learning something novel about your customers that you've never seen before or your company's never learned about before, that stuff doesn't scale. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it it's, just just, it's retrospective and it's descriptive yeah. data. So, you know, that's a massive problem if you're not supplementing that with with other forms of data that that ask the, well, what if and, and go into the random. So, you know, the X factor is kind of built on that. Like I'm a big proponent of just like this, these moments of random serendipity that happen. Like, for example, I may just meet the best business contacts sometimes on the plane when I'm flying around or just that random events that have just been step changes that would never come from any sort of formal, scalable uh, data collection analyst sort of process that I could ever have. So I'm a big proponent of... I've, putting some random craziness in, into, into your department. 
Yes, I love it. Embrace the chaos, the craziness, <laughs> because that's that's the, you know, there's another concept for this, which is a fluid knowledge versus crystallized knowledge. So the idea is that, and Sam Harris and a few other prominent people in sort of more philosophy think about this and that, like fluid knowledge is the crazy, chaotic ideation, learning a lot, pivoting, a lot of change and chaos. Mm-hmm. But then like crystallized knowledge is like when you get a bit l- a later on in life or perhaps in your career is that it's more about passing it on or solidifying what you know. And it's less chaotic. It's more structured it's more hierarchical and i think the people who tend to have the budgets to buy martech are the ones who are probably in that category of crystallized knowledge i mean they're perhaps sitting on 20 years of experience but the young you know early stage startup which is trying to figure it all out you know they are swapping tools out constantly right because they figure out okay this is going to get us a bit a bit more advantage or this is going to be a better solution and create more efficiency for us you know and they're happy to have that fluid state in their business because it helps them lead to get get to uh, better outcomes and so well this has been a fascinating conversation john i think we can keep going and i highly yeah. recommend <laughs> that listeners join the champagne strategy podcast because oh, thanks, uh, you're talking you're unpacking this these mental models and these ways of thinking every single week and, and regularly with your with your guests as well so fantastic mm-hmm. to have you john but I, w- I have one last question for you that's sure. okay you worked as a sommelier for a period of time <laughs> that's obviously a very great combo in the marketing industry i'm sure you have some fantastic recommendations but how did you actually get into that yeah role? so look i as I said, I've done lots of different jobs. One of my former jobs was working at a Raxi's restaurant in, in Whistler, Canada, back in the day, which was featured on, you know, Ramsey's kitchen sort of show, you know, the, the competition show, not the nightmares version, the other one. Anyway, very high end. I had to then go, when a really expensive order of wine had come, I had to go down to the cellar, which was all ordered by, coded by numbers because we had over 500 or 1,000 wines in the cellar. It was crazy. So just finding the wine was an exercise, right? And you basically had to be somewhat fluent in French because a lot of the, the names were in French. Anyway, uh, I got to taste, as is customary there, if you buy a nice bottle, as the... Uh, it was customary that you would sort of tip your waiter and server, right? And then you would leave the dregs or like maybe half a glass or a glass of of the really expensive wine in the bottle to then help the bar staff and the wine staff expand their knowledge of, of what these wines are. Because obviously, you know, I can't afford to to purchase a $3,500 bottle of Chateau Margaux 85. So I got to taste these crazy wines, which sort of just really ruined me. Um, the first sparkling I ever had was Dom Perignon 96, which is one of the best years ever. Um, so anyway, I was exposed to this these uh, very crazy wines at a very young age. And when I started my agency, um, we have to celebrate wins. So my business partner and I would celebrate a new client win by going to the local um, wine store, in this case, Dan Murphy's, and buying a bottle of champagne. And then I started to learn how to use Instagram at the time, which is you know, 2014 or something. And so I would post it on Instagram and obviously you know, those things went well and I learned how to use the algorithm and all that kind of thing. And uh, I quickly ran out of all the, the <laughs> we got lots of clients and then I ran out of all the different types of champagne to try. So I had to go further afield into the niche areas. And then I, I suppose it's just, it's just interesting the world of wine and um, tasting them blind, I think was my step change when you cover the, the label of the bottle and you drink it, not knowing what the wine is. And when you do that, you get exponentially, you have this step change in your ability to taste wines. And it's amazing how some of the most expensive wines don't actually taste very good and how some of the cheaper ones taste brilliant for their price. And there's a lot of human bias that goes into to wine choices. And I just think it's a really interesting area. You could really wine geek out 
on this topic, but I think there's a lot of important analogies you can make with the wine world around branding and the effect of customer perceptions and reality and pricing and distribution and yeah, it's just, and stories. For example, you know, there's Dom Parion didn't invent champagne, but LVMH and Dom Parion claim that that he did and have this whole brand story around it, which is based on a factual mistruth. So um, really interesting area to be in. And yeah, it's just something I I enjoy doing and I use it sometimes as an icebreaker. And at the start of the podcast, we've, I, I try to force my guests, uh, unless they're not persuaded by alcohol, to share a bottle of champagne with me. And yeah, I've been doing that ever since. Oh, wow. That's phenomenal. And uh, I can see how it, it, it just adds a lot of value to, um, as you say, relationships and um, and then also you know, all those learnings about, yeah, like taste and, you know, specialization as well. And it's such a complex industry being in the wine space. I mean, I used to work in hospitality as a chef and I remember we did wine tastings and it just, I couldn't get my head around it. It was just, there were so many options and so much complexity and flavor and taste, but I'm like, nah, it's probably not for me. It's too complicated. So kudos to you. I, put, I take my hat off to you, but John, can you let us know, our audience know where we can find you on the web? Yeah, look, um, probably if you want to talk to me and get in contact, just uh, DM me on, on LinkedIn. So it's just the official John James, the guy in the blue shirt, sort of his head to the side. And I think, you know, if you want to listen to the podcast, just Champagne Strategy, type it into all your big uh, podcast thingies um, and you'll find it pretty easily. That's probably the best two ways. Uh, I'm sometimes on Twitter, but, you know, it's a bit of a, a troll factory at the best of times. So that, that's probably the best two options. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, we are regularly interviewing people who are featured every week in the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. People like John, who are um, deep thinkers and at the forefront of the industry. We delve into topics that subscribers care about. Um, and if you'd like to read and subscribe, you can head to themartechweekly.com. Thanks for joining me, John. Thank you. And uh, I subscribe and I like your graphs. So keep it up. Oh, thank you very much.